Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Censored, where we're starting Season 9 of Trawling the Censors Blacklist for Smut. I'm Aoife Vertnach, a historian with a one-track mind. This season, I'll be particularly obsessing over memoir and autobiography. Most of the books I've read in previous seasons are novels, works of fiction bought and read as fiction. But I want to talk about how the censors targeted non-fiction as well, specifically autobiography. Now, I have read one or two already. You probably remember Errol Flynn's celebrity memoir because of its glorious title, My Wicked, Wicked Ways. He doesn't come out very well from that book, I have to say. I've gone off him completely since. But I do think it's interesting that personal stories told as truth were often banned, just as often as novels. The censors didn't like personal testimony or examples of lives lived on the edge of respectability. They just don't want those circulating widely. A long-time member of the board, a one Professor McGuinness, asked this rhetorical question about censorship. Are you going to allow the truth to be told about everything to everyone without qualification and at all times? And the answer from the censorship board that he sat on was absolutely fucking not. So I'm starting the season with an Irish memoir by Sean O'Casey. It was banned in 1939. O'Casey actually wrote six volumes of memoir, which, in my opinion, is far too many because nobody's that interesting. The first two were banned, and in this episode, I'm looking at volume one, I Knock at the Door. Until the ban was revoked in 1947, it was illegal to sell or import this book. So what were people missing out on? What sort of memoir did O'Casey write? Some of you, of course, are familiar with his plays, but I'm not sure his autobiography is that widely read. They'd certainly pass me by. This is my first time reading an O'Casey work that wasn't a play. But before we get into the book, we need to refresh ourselves with a beverage. Unusually for a book of this time period, hardly anyone drinks any booze. For me, the drink redolent of O'Casey's childhood in Dublin slums is a cup of tea, where the tea is carefully rationed throughout the week. There is milk to go in the tea, but only barely. 
and only because great care is taken to preserve it for the tea. This is the tea-drinking experience of the poor in the late 19th century in Dublin. There are people living in a city whose main income source was the British Army garrison. Unlike the working class in the great industrial cities of England, they can't afford much tea because they don't have a lot of cash. But the first cup of milky tea in the morning is essential to life. So imagine that cup in your hand is your only one for today. And let's get started. This is a clear case, I think, where the author, whose name is on the cover, was very important. By the time this memoir was published in 39, Sean O'Casey had offended a good few Irish people with his plays. He'd pissed them off enough that they protested loudly and at length. In 1926, his play The Plough and the Stars caused a mini-riot in the Abbey Theatre on the fourth night it was shown. This play offers a critique of the 1916 Rising, which of course is a foundational moment in the Irish nationalist mythology and in the self-conception of the state. O'Casey put a prostitute into his play, which was quite daring for the Irish National Theatre. He was a committed socialist and so was pretty sceptical about the glories of nationalism and said so in The Plough and the Stars. Women in the audience began to protest and these were mostly women who had been politically active in 1916 or related to men who had fought that Easter. They booed and hissed and shouted at the actors. You know, I studied The Plough and the Stars in school and we were taken to the theatre to see it and nobody, just nobody mentioned there was a mini-riot during its opening run. Maybe they didn't want to give us any ideas. An audience full of teenage schoolchildren is pretty raucous already. Probably didn't need any inspiration. So that's the first famous controversy that O'Casey caused. The next one happened in 1930, when a film version of his other play, Juno and the Paycock, directed by no less than Alfred Hitchcock, was shown in Limerick. This play also questions the romance of Irish nationalism, trying to show its flaws and failings. The film was shown three times before a bloke burst into the projectionist booth, stole half the reels and burnt them in the street. I mean, that's the worst review you could ever get. Obviously, the overly sensitive types who policed censorship did not approve of O'Casey's work in general. Since he was a defiant and unapologetic socialist, conservatives would have seen him as dangerously misguided. By 1939, he was fairly notorious. So when the customs officers opened the parcel and saw Sean O'Casey on the book cover, they sent a copy to the censorship board, probably without thinking twice. Once the board got their hands in it, though, what did they think? Because they are supposed to judge a book on its merits in their eyes rather than what they think of Sean O'Casey. Was it obvious why they banned it? For me, as a reader, at first glance, I would say no. This is not a sex memoir. It's not an autobiography of the flesh or a deep exploration of desire. In fact, this first volume of O'Casey's memoirs covers his life from birth to early adolescence. Or rather, Johnny Cassida, the protagonist whose name is not quite the same as Sean O'Casey's own. This memoir isn't told from a first-person point of view, by an eye, but from the point of view of this child, and it's more a third-person point of view, really. But it's still recognised to be an autobiography. This isn't a text where Sean O'Casey uses his own life 
to inform his fiction. Nonetheless, it does have a lot of fantastical elements where he complicates the idea of a memoir as true. So it's maybe not the easiest memoir to describe if you're used to thinking of the genre as non-factual. But whatever you think about truth and fiction, there's not a lot of sex in I Knock at the Door. The hero Johnny is a little young to be obsessed with shagging. Actually, that's book two of his memoirs, if you're interested. In this first volume, it's other people who have had or will have sex, and those other people are mostly his family. Appropriately, it opens with the body of another sexual being, his own mother. But not having sex, because that would obviously be easy to say why it was banned. This is the book's opening paragraph. In Dublin, sometime in the early 80s, on the last day of the month of March, a mother in child pain clenched her teeth, dug her knees home into the bed, sweated and panted and grunted, became a tense living mass of agony and effort, groaned and pressed and groaned and pressed, and pressed a little boy out of her womb into a world where white horses and black horses and brown horses and white and black horses and brown and white horses trotted tip-tap, tip-tap, tippity-tap-tap, over cobblestones conceitedly, in front of Landau, Brougham or Vis-a-Vis. That's most of the paragraph. You don't want to hear any more about the horses. You'll notice it's also just one sentence. There's a lot of extremely long multi-clause sentences in this autobiography as well. That's kind of his style. And I know horses, like, it's not very filthy, is it? He doesn't even mention the shite. In that first line, he conjures up his mother's physical struggle with birth, and then he veers off to talking about pretty ponies. I'm sure the censors didn't have a problem with the horses, but a birthing woman probably did upset them. It's just a bit too fleshy, too much blood, too much sweat. I'll admit it's not shocking to read now, but it was gritty by 1939 standards. And then there's his digressionary style, where he starts with birth and ends up conjuring horses on pretty city streets. This is the narrative project of his memoir. He loves a good digression. So do I, usually. I adore Tristram Shandy, which is one of the most famous digressionary novels ever written. But I couldn't warm to O'Casey's digressions in this, really. I just can't work out why. Maybe it's because it reminded me more of Joyce's Ulysses, but just not as good as that. Of course, anything that seemed a bit Joycean would be immediately suspect to the Irish censors. They never did ban Ulysses because suppressing it worked fine, but Joyce as an author at this time is a byword for dirty, rude, transgressive literature. O'Casey's homage to Joyce would not have pleased the censors at all. The biggest problem with his free-flowing, stream-of-consciousness style of writing is that it's very unpredictable. And that's deliberate. It's the whole artistic point. For censors, of course, this is very dangerous. They want straightforward, no-nonsense writing, concluding with easy moral judgments. Modernist writing asks too many questions that it doesn't bother to answer. Lots of readers find this kind of thing frightening. On a practical level, reading O'Casey's memoir like a censor isn't easy because of this style. It takes time and effort to read such a text 
and skimming the page looking for the dirty bits is pretty impossible. I should know. I did try. It doesn't yield its transgressive content easily because there's just so much to take in. When a sentence starts in one place and then ends up somewhere else, it confounds the reader. But I did stick with it, I felt obliged, and I found more indecent material than this first line, your one given birth. Like I said, Johnny doesn't have sex, but the sex lives of others is part of the story. And O'Casey brings sex in properly, for the first time, in a funeral scene. Really, he couldn't be more rude. Contrasting sex with grief and death is pretty daring. Johnny is describing his father's wake, held in his parents' flat. O'Casey did lose his father when he was very young, and the family finances did suffer as a result, as he portrays in the memoir. But his hero's point of view often moves away from strict realism to something more complicated. This happens on page 34, when Johnny describes Katie Johnston, a mourner visiting the wake house. She attracts his attention because she wants to be looked at by everyone. She's dressed to impress, with an exaggerated bustle, which gives her a big swaying arse. Then the narrative goes off on one, taking us outside the house of mourning into Katie's private love life, which is imagined by O'Casey rather than directly observed by his protagonist. So I'll read this bit out. If you're a bit confused by it, that's okay, because I'm starting halfway through a sentence that began two pages ago. And Katie keeping him at arm's length when she finds him thrilled and panting with the saucy delusion of getting him to tie her shoe beneath a skirt lifted to show a leg fading deliciously up under a cloud of white fancy flounces or fastening a brooch slyly sliding out of her breast purposely done to let him fiddle longingly with her ditties and after a while when he was hot and full of a choky sensation putting the pin back in its place herself and telling him and thanking him that would do nicely giggling up in his face when she saw that he had gone far enough to try and tear off every stitch she was wearing and fling her flat on the floor in front of the eyes of all in the room. Right, did you get very lost? Did you look at the forward button on your device and think, I wonder how I could skip this? I didn't even read it all out. I did stop quite early. So to recap, Katie is seeing an older man whom she teases with stockings and suggestive ways of pinning a brooch onto her bosom. There's a panting edge to it, don't you think? O'Casey is inviting us to imagine Katie's saucy fun and the breathless lust it inspires. And this is in the midst of a chapter called His Father's Wake. No time-poor censor is going to think there'd be sexy stuff in that chapter, but there it is, stuffed into an extended monologue on the dead man and what a wake is like. I honestly can't be sure that it's Johnny relating this. Maybe it's a chorus of amalgamated voices like a mash-up of all the neighbours sitting round and gossiping? It's not immediately obvious either way, which is kind of the point for O'Casey here. So that's one bit about sex. The next is plain to see when Johnny's sister Ella prepares for her marriage to Nicholas, a drummer in the British Army. The narrative describes her washing and dressing, which wouldn't be indecent, 
but Ella's thoughts are of sex and its joys. And this is from page 67. She felt proud in her new clothes and thought of the exciting time she'd have when Nicholas would be helping her to take them off, one by one, in readiness for the crowning of their connection after Holy Church had incorporated the two in one. She would give her Nicholas a good time, and in an hour or two, all she had would be his forever and ever. Amen. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Go on, you good thing, Ella. You could argue now that this is okay because she's about to get married and sex and marriage is permitted and that would be a good argument. The only thing is, though, carnal pleasure, even within marriage, is suspect. Married sex is supposed to be for procreation, which is a holy thing. Enjoyment isn't really the purpose. So Ella's wholesome and normal desires would have earned this memoir a blacklisting. For all that, though, I mean, that's only really two isolated passages. I think the really incendiary stuff in I Knock at the Door is politics and religion. His plays offended audiences because of his political critiques, and he had a habit of combining sex and politics when he used characters who were sex workers to make those political points. That's when he really, really pissed people off. There's not so much of that in this memoir, but there is lots and lots of political content. Firstly, there's his family's deep, terrifying poverty. And because this is an autobiography and understood as more true than not, this makes for grim reading. He is the third Johnny born to his parents after two previous holders of the name died young. This wasn't unusual, sadly, but you can feel O'Casey's tightly reined fury at his mother's suffering and the shrugging attitude of society in general to these terrible losses. His mother's second Johnny died in her arms from croup while she waited to see a doctor. As a poor woman, she couldn't pay for urgent medical attention, so she had to wait, holding him while he gasped for breath. 
When the medics arrive, too late, they say they couldn't have saved him anyway. And she replies, none of you broke your hearts trying. I mean, that's just ouch. Fucking ouch. When this was published in 1939, the medical system was pretty similar to O'Casey's childhood in the 1880s, in Ireland at least. There was no universal free medical care, even in the case of emergencies. This status quo was vigorously defended by doctors who liked commercial medicine and the middle classes who liked feeling superior to scruffy poor people. There's no way any of the censors reading this shared O'Casey's political perspective on poverty. Apart from the rare socialists like him, most people in Ireland believed that charging the sick for medical care was sensible, pragmatic even. If you didn't, the whole thing would be overwhelmed by freeloaders. To be honest, lots of people today still think that, but that's a podcast for another day. The next political topic that probably upset the censors was O'Casey's low opinion of the clergy. It's not surprising a socialist didn't like organised religion, though. Giving out about priests is standard fare for anyone with far-left views. But here's where it gets kind of complicated. O'Casey was raised in the Church of Ireland, not the Roman Catholic Church. So his nasty, cruel clerics are not Catholic, but Protestant. Specifically, Anglican, but Protestant in Dublin is a synonym for Anglican. Honestly, I think this was a bit of a headfuck for the Catholic censors. Obviously, they didn't approve of Protestants. In their eyes, they're all apostates and heretics on the fast train to hell. But they don't like anti-clericalism either. It's one thing to criticise Protestantism as a theology, but another to attack the social hierarchy as expressed in the Church of Ireland. O'Casey's critique was almost certainly too radical for them. Also, the censorship board at this time had one token Protestant on it, a man who was of solid respectability and gentility. Such a man was unlikely to agree with socialist attacks on the failure of the Protestant Church. Because the rector in this memoir is as vile as any Catholic priest you've read about in the slew of recently published memoirs or novels coming from Ireland. For the last few decades, it's been acceptable, nay obligatory, to trash Catholic priests in print. Sean O'Casey filleted a so-called man of God in this book in the 1930s, but no one took any inspiration for it for a long time. And that's really a shame because he pays such close attention to how the power ebbs and flows between his mother and her rector. It's really brilliant in a kind of a political, psychological, social sense. But it's also quite radical because he places the physical and emotional welfare of the child, Johnny, at the centre of the story. So he combines an adult political perspective with the sense of passionate justice that a child brings to a story. I think the book is worth reading for this bit alone, because it is really well-crafted. But although this would have made the censors pretty uncomfortable, they might have let it go. Maybe. After all, O'Casey was a Protestant, and who were Catholics to judge what sort of chaos was tolerated among the heretics? 
The censors could have shrugged at O'Casey casting slurs on Protestant rectors, but then he went ahead and told the history of the Reformation, and this is a lengthy digression beginning on page 83. This is not history as objective, closely argued, granular stuff. This is the history O'Casey learned as an Irish Protestant. Not that it's necessarily wrong or even factually incorrect, it's just very upfront in its political point of view, which is that the Reformation was absolutely necessary. I've no doubt that the censors thought praising the Protestant Reformation while slagging off the Pope was both indecent and obscene. Now I struggle to choose which bits to read out, since there are pages and pages of pungent critique of the pre-Reformation Church. It starts out bluntly like this sentence from page 83. This is the beginning of the digression. Blackfriars, Whitefriars, purple-hooded monks, brown-caped priests, crimson-cassocked cardinals, and mitred abbots were eating the people out of house and home, and there wasn't a sign to be seen anywhere that heaven was any better for the taxing and the thithing that went on without let or hindrance everywhere. There's a few tongue twisters in that, isn't there? It's hard to read out loud. Like I said, I mean, he's not wrong. It's true the taxes were not having any effect on heaven. As for the gluttonous monks and bishops, this is a trope found in a lot of anti-Catholic propaganda. In fact, much of this is like the exaggerated preachery pamphlets and books that circulated in Protestant circles. O'Casey's own da was a great man for theological argument, keeping books like Popery Practical Paganism on the family bookshelves. Once again, all the peas. So O'Casey grew up saturated in this sort of narrative, which he's really playing with in this digression. One minute you think he's taking it very seriously, but in the next line you get the impression he's taking the piss. Like when he writes about Luther, who talks directly to God, who says, Get busy, man, and teach the truth of the gospel, for out of the teaching and the truth will come swarms of fighting men, beating of drums and blowing of bugles, big guns and little guns, and great ships of war, so that red men, yellow men and black men will become in the course of time the white man's lawful, God-fearing and most obedient batmen. Really, O'Casey? I don't think you believe in that sort of racist world order at all. Why would teaching the gospel anyway lead to racialized empires like the British one? He's just enjoying playing with these juxtapositions, I think. And the expectations you have of the rhetoric. Many readers would have had a lot of expectations of this sort of pulpit rhetoric because they were really familiar with it. That pompous, grandiose style was found in many churches at a time when most people attended some form of Christian worship, either very regularly or fairly regularly. Like, this style is part of the discourse. People know what he's doing here. And like any good preacher, O'Casey knows he needs to start small. Like that first line I read out about the friars eating everything. And the reason you start small is to make the crescendo more satisfying. So on page 86, he writes this incendiary sentence. 
But the devil, getting anxious about his status, stirred up the hearts of the Pope, cardinals, abbots and abbesses to anger, and they made bloody war on all who were determined to follow the commandments between the followers of God on the one hand and the followers of Satan on the other. Holy fuck, he was definitely banned for that. He just said the Catholic Church was inspired by the devil. No sugarcoating any of that. The censors would have lost their minds. You'd be forgiven for thinking that O'Casey was a horrible bigot after hearing he wrote that. But on the next page, he turns all this preaching on its head, making his socialist points. And this is what he wrote about the class conflict within the Protestant society as represented by Johnny, i.e. himself, and the Reverend Hunter, who's their rector. The Reverend Hunter was born in Protestant circumstances that made him a sky pilot, and Johnny was born a Protestant in circumstances that placed him in the position of being lugged along at the backside of this soft-hatted, stiff-collared, egg-headed old henchman of heaven to be added to his swarm of urchins cowering and groping about in the rag-and-bone education provided by the church and state. It always comes back to class for O'Casey. Always. Calling a rector a sky pilot is cheeky, but also makes the links again between the military, empire and religion. I get the feeling O'Casey doesn't like established churches, like the Church of England. This digression on the Reformation ends with Johnny facing the inner gloom of school, where he will be beaten and abused in the name of God and faith. This is a complete emotional journey, taking a reader from the heights of holy inspiration to the depths of poverty and powerlessness. Only thing I'll say against it is that it's long. Like, it's very 19th century in its length. This one digression is five full pages. It's like a bit too epic, really. But enough of the close reading. I think we need to put I knock on the door to the censorship bingo test. First up, a firm favourite, breasts. Yes, there are a fair few diddies, as he calls them. He keeps mentioning that his father had a glass mermaid ornament in his room, and he keeps talking about that it had bare boobs. I don't know what he's trying to say there, but it just pops up a number of times. Could be his tendency to create atmosphere with furnishings. When you go see his plays, there's a lot of detail in the stage sets as well. So that seems to be his conceptualization of atmosphere. Then we have bestiality. No, in spite of the horse plus birthing woman in paragraph one, nothing like that. Then sex work. I didn't see it, but to be honest, the text might have pulled the wool over my eyes a few times. There are sex workers in volume two, though. Next up, racism. Oh yes, I'm afraid so. It's quite racist at times, and the N-word appears fairly frequently. And there's a Jewish glazier who's taunted by Johnny and his friends. So I think we can tick this one. Then drugs. No, hardly any drink even, which is surprising. Politics. So, so much politics. It's all about politics, really. I didn't even get a chance to discuss the whole Fenianism versus the Loyalists. And then the interesting debate about how Irish can a Protestant even be? 
So yes, tick that. Swearing. For a memoir that's dominated by street scenes and lots of crowds, the language is extremely clean. Either he's sanitised Dublin or bad language on the streets is a relatively recent phenomenon here. Then infidelity. No, I didn't think so. Next up, crime. He does steal an egg that rolls his way when a grocer's load is upset. His mother is terrified when she sees this, warning him that he must never steal or he'll end up in a reform school. That's a reminder of the dark shadow that institutions cast on the urban poor, like Johnny. So yeah, we can take this one. Genitalia. No, not at all. Abortion. Also no. Orgies. Eh, uh, no way. Because it's not really that Joycean. Then, sexual assault. Well, at the end, Johnny kisses a girl he fancies called Jenny. She resists, clearly flirting, and after he kisses her, he runs away in sudden shame. It's an ambiguous moment, but I don't know, I don't think the resistance is real enough for it to be sexual assault. Extramarital pregnancy. No, because there's not much really on sex lives. Masturbation. No, same thing. Sex toys. Uh, definitely not. Feminism. You know, as I read this, I think there should have been, but there isn't. Nothing on gender equality at all. He's too busy making points about class inequality. Then divorce. No, well, his family and neighbours are far too poor to afford divorce. Contraception? No. You could say his mother's eight births proves that Protestants in 19th century Dublin were just as prolific as Catholics. Then menstruation? No. And then blasphemy? I mean, hell yeah. Absolutely. His vision of the Reformation would have been seen as completely blasphemous by Catholic censors. Oral sex? No. Graphic violence? Yes, I do think the scene where Johnny is beaten by a schoolteacher counts as pretty graphic. It's quite upsetting, really, so we can tick that one. At last. And then finally, queer content. Now, I didn't see any, but again, caveat, there's just so much detail in every sentence, I may have missed it. Or forgotten it, because the sentence moved on to something else entirely. It's quite easy to be misled by O'Casey's narrative style here, or perhaps bamboozled is a better word. So I Knock on the Door by Sean O'Casey gets just 5 out of 25. It's pretty low, really, but it's not unusual for books banned in the 1930s. I'm not sure if I would recommend it. If you're deeply interested in Irish history and politics, O'Casey's voice made the establishment uncomfortable, even after he left the country to live in England. And when his work wasn't officially banned like this, its circulation was often kind of impeded unofficially. In 1957, a collection of his criticism was published called The Green Crow. It was never formally banned, but customs officials and the post office stopped the parcels, held them for weeks, and then sent them back to the publishers. They did this frequently enough 
that the publishers just stopped sending the books over to Ireland. It was the petty bureaucrat's revenge on a man with the brass neck to challenge the status quo. So if reading a cultural iconoclast is your thing, read O'Casey's memoir. <clears throat> if you want to read O'Casey's memoir with more sex in it, read number two, Pictures in the Hallway. Still not a lot of sex, though. He didn't really write sex memoirs. And speaking of sex memoirs, it's a genre all on its own. And I'm reading one of those for the next episode. So I can guarantee there'll be massive amounts of smut and filth and all sorts of anatomical detail to entertain you. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds absolutely filthy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.